So we're looking at the, uh, the Psalms, just a, a sampling of the Psalms in the, in the fall. And this evening we come to uh, this Psalm of David, Psalm 19, which has uh, split in two between these two ways of revealing the nature of God. Um, the first part, which is all about nature, you might have noticed, and the second part is all about uh, scripture or the law. Uh, two different kinds of revelation. One is sometimes called general or natural revelation. The other is special uh, or, or saving uh, revelation. And in um, 1615, Galileo, in, this, uh, in the aftermath of this famous trial where he was put under house arrest for saying that, um, that actually the, the sun is the center of the solar system and we're going around the sun, uh, because of that, he was um, put in house arrest, but he wanted to write his boss, who is a woman named the Grand Duchess Christina, and he wanted to let her know that actually he was both a rigorous scientist and a very devout Christian. And he wanted to know that there are actually these two books, he called them the Book of Nature and the Book of Scripture. And you can read his letter to her about this, it's really interesting. He says that... Um, the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And the book of scripture is written in the language of human beings. And he says that they are both ways of revealing God. And they can never contradict each other. Because they both reveal the same God. And David is actually saying something fairly similar to that here. He actually goes into depth, maybe beyond even what Galileo was talking about. Because he's saying that... The book of nature, which you see in verses 1 through 6, that's kind of the revelation that nature gives us. That can only tell us uh, up to the point of uh, the word God, which in uh, Hebrew is El, E-L, E-L, El, it's pronounced El. And, and so in the first six verses, what David is saying is that the heavens declare the glory of God generically, uh, but not this special God. That's the God that any nation could know about. We might just call it the creator. Philosophers call it theism in general from theos. Uh, but scripture, verses 7 through 14, tells us a lot more about that God, El, that all agree upon. Um, namely, that God is a rock and a redeemer, verse 14. Oh Lord, and that's Yahweh, the special name of God. Not just El, but Yahweh our rock and our redeemer. And I kind of think of it like if you see a, a figure coming in the back and it's backlit and this giant figure is coming towards you in the doorway, um, lit from the back and it's a dark room, all you can tell is that it's really large, it's a, it's a person, maybe they're strong, there's power there, but you can't actually see the face of the person. To see the, pa- to see the face of the person, you have to have a light coming from the front. And so what this is saying is that the book of nature can only tell you that there's some kind of figure coming at you that is large and powerful and maybe intelligent, maybe even throwing the word beautiful. But until you really see the face of Ale, of God, you don't know what Yahweh is. Namely that Yahweh is, uh, is the rock and the redeemer, the one who actually is gracious. You wouldn't know from nature that God is gracious, but when you look at Scripture... You, you, you know a lot more about God. So I want to talk about those two things. Um, the book of nature, so to speak, in the first part of the psalm. And then the, the revelation of scripture in the second part of the psalm of Yahweh. So notice verse 2. Night 
tonight reveals knowledge. Now that's knowledge, not just faith. So what David's saying is if you look up at the sky, it is generating, if your cognitive faculties are working properly, and you're looking at the sky at night, and the stars and the moon, and how they move around and so perfectly uh, ordered, what David is saying is that you're going to have true knowledge of God. Now, knowledge and God are things we kind of separate, especially in schools. You have knowledge over here. You have God and faith over here. You have facts over here. You have opinions over here. But David is saying that it's not personal opinions or educated guesses that are coming out of our vision of God in the night sky. That just by looking at the sky, true knowledge comes into our mind. And Paul takes that same idea in Romans 1.18 and says, Ever since the creation of the world... God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen in the things that are made. Paul goes in, in depth and just says, he says again later, there's no excuse. Because when you look at nature, whether it's the moon or the sun or the stars, you look at the sky, both at night and at day, you, you know there is genuine knowledge coming into you. This is not the kind of knowledge we need a proof. You don't need to read this in a book. You don't need to go through a chain of reasoning. You just look at nature... You look at a sunrise, you look at a sunset, you look at a full moon, um, and into your mind comes the thought unbidden, God, creator, beauty, power. So we have eyes that detect the light. You don't have to go through any kind of uh, stepwise thinking to, to know there's things hitting your eyeball. It just happens. And sound waves hit my ears. I start to think things through the sound waves. Smells hit my nose. And then apparently what David's saying is that this information's coming and our souls register God, register divinity. And it says uh, that this knowledge is almost like precognitive. It's deeper than words. It's, it's something that gets into you before you know how to make words. So a little child like Lois could know about God, could know a lot more about God than we think she could know. Because it says in verse 3, there is no speech and there are no words and there's no voice. And yet there is a voice. It's a con- it almost looks like a contradiction. It's brilliant poetry by David. But you know, there are no speech, there are no words, no voice is heard. But their voice goes out through all the world. And what he's saying is that you don't, you don't hear that there is a God like that phrase in Spanish or English or Hebrew or French. This is a language that is um, transnational and cross-cultural Verse 4 says, their voice goes to the end of the world. And that means their voice as in the sky voice, the, the nature's voice, the voice of Mother Nature. It, uh, it speaks the same way in Brazil and in America and in Japan and Australia and South Africa. It's, uh, it's everywhere, the whole world. And the voices are saying uh, that God is glorious. The heavens declare the glory of God. God there is some God that is beautiful and awesome and weighty and deserving of our attention and you just can't get rid of it even if you try to suppress it it also tells us that we are God's handiwork or workmanship verse 1 the sky proclaims his handiwork so as much as we might try to hold that down and Paul says we do try to hold that down and David says the fool says in his heart no God no God no God it's kind of like covering up little holes like there's stuff spurting out here and here and David says, the fool says in his heart, no, no God, no God, like trying to hold it down. But verse 2 says that day after day just keeps pouring out speech. There's too much information flowing. 
So you have these uh, beautiful patterns in nature. You have this amazing complexity in nature. You have intricate design. You have elegant equations. You have uh, F equals MA. Force equals mass times acceleration. That is, humans have created these three letters and then put it together like that. And somehow nature actually operates that way. It's an incredible thing. Einstein was fascinated by this phenomenon. He could not figure out. Nobel Prize winner uh, Eugene Wigner, he said, uh, there's an unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. He could not figure out why math works. We just take it for granted. E equals mc squared, and we're like, you know, obviously. No, it's not obvious at all. It took us thousands of years to come up with that, and it's such a simple equation, and it works. It describes so many things. The whole technology behind the uh, atom bomb came from that equation, much to Einstein's chagrin. And that, these things are not for our consumption, our use only. They're not just for um, engineering purposes or technology purposes. These things are to be wondered at and simply to be gloried in. They're, they're supposed to generate worship in us. And it says in verse 1 that, that they declare the glory of God. That's a, that's a strong word. It's a vigorous word. Um, you don't say, I declared my order to the waitress at Applebee's. You know, that's not the word. First of all, you don't go to Applebee's. But even if you did go to Applebee's, you would, you would say, uh, I told my waitress the order at Applebee's. You, you, don't, you would say, I declared my love to, to her yesterday. Or I declared my love to him yesterday. That's a strong word. The heavens are declaring it. And then proclaiming is another strong word. You wouldn't say, um, I visited the doctor and I proclaimed my date of birth to the, to the fifth nurse for the 17th time. You, you say, I proclaim to you that you are now husband and wife. So these are words uh, that are strong words because nature, nature is a charismatic. Nature, I hate to say it, but nature is not a Presbyterian. She doesn't worship like this. She worships like this and she sways, you know, back and forth and... Uh, she declares things. She proclaims things. She, she sings. And uh, it, it seems that she gets very worked up about God. Um, the way that a child gets worked up when they go to the zoo and, you know, they'll come home and say, we saw a lion, I got ice cream, and there was a sea lion that splashed on us, and she spilled her drink, and just go on and on, you can't even stop them from talking. Uh, nature is that way about God. They just keep pouring out, uh, declaring, proclaiming God's greatness in our handiwork. I mentioned him last week, one of my favorite writers, G.K. Chesterton. He said, children always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead, pushing them on a swing again and again and again. Because grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But it is possible that God says every morning to the sun, do it again. And every evening to the moon, do it again. And they just go around and around and around. The sun, for sure, exults in monotony. In verse 6, David talks about its circuit every day. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its going down is to the other end. And it's kind of like every morning the sun comes up with a flourish and is so excited to see us and to show off, so to speak, and then goes down the other side every day with a bang, with a flourish, and, you know, throws us around every year. Once a year, the sun throws us around and heats the entire solar system. There is nothing hidden from its heat, verse 6. The sun, David is really impressed by the sun. 
It says, uh, he comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, he runs its course with joy. Now, those are bold analogies. I don't know if you've thought about that. Um, a bridegroom leaving his chamber, that's, that is the night of the honeymoon. So that's the moment after consummation. So the sun, in other words, when the sun comes out, the sun is excited. The sun is full of energy. The sun is like a strong man running its course. I think about Usain Bolt when he crosses the finish line, you know, in nine seconds. And he's looking backwards and slowing down and laughing. And then he puts that Jamaican flag around his arm. He does that thing like that. And the sun is, that's the analogy that David's using. The sun is like this fantastic sprinter that, that dances to God's glory like David before the ark. And the sun is not a separate god. That's one point here, that the Egyptians worship the sun and a lot of the Canaanites worship the sun. It's very tempting to worship the sun. And David said, no, the sun is actually telling us to worship God and to dance and sing before God. Last week we sang this song, I mentioned it last week too, uh, So Will I. And I've just been really fascinated by that song since we sang it. This is from the song, As You Speak... A hundred billion galaxies are born, and the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. And the whole song is if, if they're worshiping, I'm joining in. If the sun is made to worship, I'm going to worship. If the moon is worshiping you, I'm going to worship you. If all the creatures are worshiping you, if the birds and the beasts and the fish, if they're worshiping you, I'm going to worship you too. Because when the sun rises and the moon is full... And when you see a shooting star, that's a call to worship. That, they're calling you to worship. And you're meant to be like Leonard Bernstein to them, where you're supposed to be the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, leading them in praise, writing poems like Psalm 19. That's our job. We are supposed to be the conductor where we compose the music, we paint the picture, um, we make the movies, we sing and dance and give God the praise. That's the first thing that that David is on about, um, is that we all know this is God, Ale. Now, Yahweh, we don't know all that. That doesn't come from nature. That comes from Scripture. But we all do know about this beautiful, glorious God. And what that, what that nature is telling us about that God is that, is that we're supposed to worship Him. That's, that's, that's the first point. Now, the reason we can't stop there, I mean, it's great to worship God in nature, but the reason you can't stop there is because nature is really a mixed bag. You do get um, the sunrise, you get the, the sunset, you get the um, shooting stars, you get the eclipses, you get uh, all sorts of beautiful things, but what you also get is you get lions eating gazelles, and you get mosquitoes, and you get hurricanes, and you get tornadoes, and there are tons of things in nature that are absolutely terrible. And so if you look at nature alone and think that, that God must be like that, it doesn't tell you enough. You might think that God has mixed motives as well. And so that's why we come to the second part of the psalm, which is the climax of the psalm, because more importantly, information about God is revealed through the scriptures. Here's a question from our officer exam. Every uh, year we, uh, we have officers come through this course, and uh, there's an exam they take at the end of the course, and here's one of the questions. So if you're, if you're going to be an officer, I'm giving you one of the answers on the test, okay? Um, a friend comes to you and says, 
I experience awe and wonder at the power of God in nature when I'm hiking. What would I learn about God by reading the Bible that I don't learn from nature? That's actually the, that's the question on the officer exam. And uh, here's one of the best answers we've ever gotten. Um, Though nature reveals to us the existence of God and can provoke genuine awe, it doesn't reveal his character. That's exactly what David's saying here. Now that person actually failed the test and did not become an officer, but that was a really good answer. <laughs> That's not true. They, they decided not to be an officer, but that was, um, that was a really, really good answer because the, the whole point of uh, this psalm is that uh, nature can tell you, just as the person said, they can tell you about the existence of God and they can provoke, nature can provoke awe in God, but it's not going to tell you about the character of God. And what you learn about the character of God in the second half of Psalm 19 is this, this idea of the Lord. That uh, the Lord is a God of law. I mean, look how many times David mentions the word law or other synonyms. And this just shows you that the law is really, really good. It's a, it's a beautiful part of God's character. The law of the Lord is perfect, verse 7. The precepts of the Lord are right. Commentators don't even know what to do with these words because they don't know what the difference in precept and law. The commandment of the Lord is pure, verse 8. The rules of the Lord are true, verse 9. It's like David is a beautiful woman that he's talking about and he can't think of enough words to describe her. So he has to go and just change a few things. And David is basically saying that the law is absolutely gorgeous. And the law is like a national treasure. It, for David, the law was one of the things that, that was God's greatest gift to Israel. And so the family of God that I was talking about when he brought children into the family of God, the blessings of that family, one of the greatest blessings of that family of God, the Israelites, that the nations didn't have was the law, the Ten Commandments, and then beyond that. But most of the Ten Commandments. And, and, and David is saying that the law is more desirable than fine gold, verse 10. And none of us have gold, probably, or not much of it. So I don't know what you love the most, if it's cash or if it's food or travel. or You've got to think in your head about some kind of wealth, something that you long for. And, and, and that is what David is saying the law is like, something that you absolutely long for, that makes your life full. And unfortunately, um, you and I, if you're like me at all, do not think of the law that way. Not at all. In fact, maybe the opposite. Um, The Ten Commandments are often seen as some kind of terrible thing that's hanging over your head. And it's the thing we debate about law, you know, should the the courthouse have the Ten Commandments in there? Because they're really awful and they're uh, they're really narrow and constricting. A lot of Christians talk about how um, the law is opposed to the gospel and the law is bad from the Old Testament and the gospel is good from the New Testament. And then, um, you know, sometimes if you, if you say you're trying to keep the law, someone will call you a legalist. Like, if someone came to you and said, I'm trying really, really hard this week to keep the law, would you tell them that they're, um, they're doing something stupid? You know, would you tell them that, that, that they are um, missing the gospel? I know in, in, in my life I've done that before. I, I've told people um, who said they were trying to keep the law really, really hard, well, you know, that's... That's not Christianity, actually. Um, you're missing the whole point. But, but David says that the law is this power. It's almost like it's a living. 
Uh, it sa- he says it is so perfect in verse 7 that it has the power to revive the soul. And when I think about revive, I think about something like uh, coffee or tea with really strong caffeine when you're dead tired and you drink it and it revives you. And it, if, you, if you had a friend that told you that they were really depressed, how many of you would ever recommend to them trying to keep the law? You might actually say, stop trying to keep the law. But nobody would say the law is going to revive you. Um, it would seem crazy to do that. But, but David says that the precepts of the Lord are so right. They are so perfectly engineered to fit human specifications. We were designed completely to live by the law. And they are, they are so right that they actually rejoice the heart. And if you think about the opposite of that, a person with no moral framework, a person who doesn't really believe in right and wrong, who thinks any decision is as good as any other decision and lives for pleasure, anybody who's lost the adventure of trying to be virtuous and the, the attempt to strive for holiness, and if you just get caught in consumer culture, um, living in Vanity Fair, and things kind of get meaningless, you'll get depressed. And you have to come back to the law and the adventure and the excitement of the law to be revived and to be rejoiced. I was watching The Hobbit um, for my son's uh, summer reading assignment. And um, he was supposed to watch The Hobbit and he was supposed to read the book, so he wasn't cheating. And uh, one scene in the movie really pierced me. I had forgotten about this. At the very beginning of the movie, The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins, this Hobbit, is very anxious and he's very depressed because these dwarves have all come into his beautiful dream home and they have started uh, wreaking havoc on his home. And they, ha- they are tracking in mud, they are scraping walls, they are chipping plates and bowls. And we've had packs of people come into our house before and you know, you get kind of nervous when someone's coming in your house about what it's gonna look like when they're all gone. And Bilbo Baggins is like absolutely terrified. Um, he's so terrified he's depressed. And the wizard Gandalf comes to him and tries to persuade Bilbo to go with the dwarves on their great adventure. And Bilbo Baggins is completely unwilling. And uh, he, he, wants, he likes his life, his little life of comforts and second dinners. And this is what Gandalf says to him. He says, tell me, Mr. Baggins, when did doilies... A doily is one of those little things that you put a cup on. It's made of, like... Um, I don't know what it's made of, but it's, uh, it's some kind of fabric, and you put the cup on it. So he's got these doilies he loves. So Gandalf says, tell me, Mr. Baggins, when did doilies and your mother's dishes become so important to you? I remember a young hobbit who was always running off in search of elves. And uh, the, I don't know why that pierced me exactly, but it just made me think about how mired I can get in what is nothing to do with the law. What is not about holiness or virtue. And the commandment of the Lord is, uh, is enlightening. It's so pure that if you really get it, uh, it, it has this ability to enlighten your eyes. And when you, when you wake up and you kind of rub your eyes because you realize the law is so great, you say, what have I been doing with my life that I have no interest in keeping the law? Or I've, begin, I've begun to really uh, downgrade what the law is. It's purity. I've begun to make compromises with the law, and I don't really care about what is right and wrong anymore. I don't care about generosity anymore. I'm okay with my greed. I don't care about 
I'm really comfortable with my lust or my gossip or coveting or jealousy and living for idols. I mean, the law is absolutely wonderful. It is sweeter than honey, David says. It's almost too attractive. And this is where you, this is where you get into the problems with the law. So all I've said about the law is truth. But if you really think about the law really hard, as David has been doing, so as David meditates on the law and talks about all these words, it's like gold, it's like honey, it's enlightening, it makes you rejoice, it revives you, and he's, he's thinking about the law, and he begins to realize towards the end of the psalm that as beautiful as the law is, it makes him feel ugly, really ugly. I don't know if you've ever hung around someone who's way, way more attractive than you, um, clearly of the same gender, and you start feeling uglier and uglier. Maybe they dress really well, or their hair is really nice, or um, something about them, just they really fit, and you start feeling uglier and uglier. That's the way David feels about the law, as he thinks about it. He just realizes, I'm not doing those things. I am not doing these things. And it's kind of like the time that I spent um, with this very virtuous husband uh, and his wife, and um, I was not treating Margie very well. And this guy was opening doors for his wife and pulling out chairs uh, for her to sit in. And he was um, making sure everything was okay with her and that the food was good. And he told her how, deli- how delicious her, her meals were. And I just started to really hate this guy. The longer I was with him, <laughs> I thought, Margie's going to start comparing me to this guy. And... Uh, this guy's virtue makes me sick. And I was really looking for some faults and um, hoping that I could, you know, say something to Margie about this guy. Well, yeah, he's like that, but he's a chauvinist or something like that. Or he has really bad taste in music. And the longer you think about the law, and um, the, the law is, uh, is patient and kind. Okay, it is, uh, it is not envying. It is not being boastful. It is not being arrogant. It is not being rude. It is not insisting on your own way. It is not being irritable. It is not being resentful. You think that what I just read is about love, but it's actually about the law, because love and the law are the same thing. Paul says they're the same thing. And so the heart of the law is these incredible virtues. And the more you realize that this is what the law is like, the more you realize you're not like that at all. And so David just cries out in verse 12, Who can discern his errors? What he's saying there is, I don't have any idea about the depths of my lawlessness. I thought I knew, but now that I've been thinking about the law, I don't know how bad it is. It's a lot worse in there than I think. It's kind of like when you're with a counselor for a certain amount of time, and you just realize there is all sorts of junk deep down in my past that I have not even really gotten around to. And that's, how, that's the way that David feels about the law. But right in the middle of that, and this is really shocking, it doesn't really make, it doesn't say this is about to happen, but just right in the middle of that, he says in verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. And I just want to know, where did that come from? How did David know that? That right when he says, who can discern his errors? In other words, I have no idea how bad I am. Then he says the next thing he's driven to say is, Lord, declare me innocent. And it's not really just a request. It's almost um, a demand. It's something, he is so confident that God will declare him so 
that uh, the word he uses is a little more than just a request. It's, it's bold. He's not talking about a slow process of God changing him from being um, you know, a lawless person to a little more lawful, to extremely lawful. He's talking like right now, at this moment, I need you to declare me innocent. I have no idea how bad I am. It's a lot worse than I know. But I also am asking the perfect judge, this very instant, to say in the ugliness of my guilt that I am absolutely righteous and absolutely innocent. He says in verse 13, then I will be blameless. And, you know, not just a little more innocent or a little bit less blameworthy, but totally blameless. And that's the combination Uh, that is revealed to us by the scriptures that, that you would never know any other way. I don't believe there's any book ever written in the world uh, other than the scriptures and the books generated by them uh, that have this secret in them. I mean, there might be other texts that get at some parts of it, other sacred texts, and I am not trashing all other sacred texts. They have enormous wisdom. But I don't think there's any other one outside of the Judeo-Christian tradition that has this idea of both, I am way, way, way worse than I think I am, and I am also absolutely innocent and absolutely blameless in the presence of God at all times. At all times. No matter how bad things are going over here. And so that's what the book of Scripture tells us, that God is a rock and a redeemer, verse 14. And that's what we get at this table.